Welcome to Pivot, a podcast for church leaders, co-sponsored by Luther Seminary's Faith Lead and Lead. Welcome to Pivot, where today's theme is loving our neighbors. I'm Terry Elton from Luther Seminary. And I'm Scott Cormode from Fuller Seminary. And I'm Louise Johnson from Lead. So I'm just going to start out with the confession here, loving our neighbor. So we are in the midst of, like many of you, all-day Zoom meetings or one Zoom meeting back-to-back, and it was one of those days for me, and I had 30 minutes off for lunch. And so I ran down to my kitchen, got some lunch, and sat out in the front yard and was just happy to be just sitting there. And it was like five minutes in, and my neighbor comes across appropriately social distancing sits on the chair on the other side of the patio and wants to talk about faith. And I'm like, seriously, God, I am like zoomed out. I wanted to just sit there. And so I'm like thinking about here, I'm doing all this good church work and, and preparing for classes and doing all this stuff. And literally my neighbor shows up in my front yard in my 30 minutes off. You know, I just have to honestly say that this, this whole thing of loving your neighbor, it interrupts my life and it's really messy. Yeah, boy, I can relate to that a lot, Terry. And I think, you know, that's not only happening on an individual scale face-to-face, but, you know, lots of our congregations are doing worship online and they now have not only physical neighbors, but digital neighbors who are showing up in their worship spaces. And lots of people are beginning to ask the question, what do we do with them? How do we move beyond, uh, you know, the virtual into something deeper? And I think it's really, it's kind of a head fake in some ways because you can't always see them. And so that makes it a little confusing sometimes to even know quite what to do. So I wonder, as we think about this new digital age that we're in and the age of pandemic, and we're asking the question, what does it look like to love our neighbors? What are the pivots that need to be made? I love your story, Louise, because it asks, what does love look like when these Zoom neighbors are virtually stepping through our doors? I just, I love that. It reminds me of, well, one of the phrases that I've come to use over the years is I realize that there are times that God rolls tumbleweeds into my life. Let me explain to you what I mean by a tumbleweed. A tumbleweed is somebody who God places in front of me, and at some point I have to understand this is now a person entrusted to my care. Let me give you an example. Years ago, I uh, got a call from the college that I graduated from, and they wanted to send a fundraiser to come and visit me. And I don't have any need to talk to a fundraiser, but I thought, you know, my own school is going through fundraising right now. It might be interesting to see what a fundraiser looks like. So I said, sure, I'll give the guy half an hour. And so the guy came, he was probably 25 years old, a recent grad, and he talked about my college and, you know, it was fine. And he got up to leave and he turned and he looked at me and he says, you got a lot of books here about God. I said, yeah. He said, you mind if I talk to you about God for a while? I mean, what's the only correct answer to, do you mind if I talk to you about God for a while? And so I sat him down and we talked about God for a while. And I said, would you like to come back next month and have another conversation about God? Oh, would you? Sure. Well, over the next six months or a year, I kept talking to him. He had another friend who kept talking to him. He eventually, through the friend, joined a Bible study, joined a church, 
became a practicing Christian, at some point I had to recognize this was a tumbleweed that God had blown into my life. He was no longer somebody who I could just blow off. I had to recognize he was now one of the people entrusted to my care. My neighbor had become one of mine. Yeah, I really appreciate that story. And I love the the term tumbleweed, the way people just blow into our lives. And I think we have now this kind of experience, at least in the digital world, of a lot of tumbleweeds coming to us. And I that's making me stop and think about why. Like, why all of a sudden, when the church has been issuing the invitation for people to walk through its doors for, well, really for centuries, but in my lifetime, since I was a kid, I remember these conversations about how do we get more people to come to church? And of course, that for, for Lutherans has proven a very challenging task um, to do. But what's interesting to me now is that we've shifted to digital environments, is that people are showing up. We have all of these tumbleweeds in front of us, and I wonder why. So I've been thinking a lot about that, and part of what occurs to me is that for the first time in, I think, my, in, for sure in my lifetime and many lifetimes, we have a common experience literally across the globe, we are all experiencing a pandemic, an unprecedented piece. And I think that is pushing us to think about ourselves and our world differently, maybe even in some ways we don't understand. I've recently picked up a a book that I love and have read on a number of occasions by John Caputo. He writes this little book called On Religion. And in it, he describes how he understands the nature of God. And so he's thinking about the nature of God as uh, the impossible, so that God is the being that makes what we, what is impossible for humans possible. So he talks about miracles and so on and so forth. But in terms of helping us understand what is impossible, he talks about humans getting to the end of their capacities, that that the veil of our own capacity to provide for ourselves, to do for ourselves, to be in control of the world around us, that, that once that veil has been stripped away and we come face to face with our deep need for God, that that's the place where God picks up. That's the impossible future. I sure as heck don't do him justice, but it's a a great way to begin to think about the situation we're in, because I think people are coming up against the end of their own capacities and waking up to their hunger, their need for God, for something other than what they've had before. The end, getting to the end of our capacity. Do we know anybody living in the pandemic right now who wouldn't describe themselves that way? We have a common experience that leads to an openness. You know, I think about, you know, so many of the pastors I know, they, they don't want to be shoving religion down somebody's throat. And so they don't want to be talking about stuff when, they, when they're not open to it. But all of a the sudden, there is a communal openness. Our society has now come to recognize that the normal way of doing things isn't working for us. And they're virtually walking through our door. They're coming through, they're coming to our our virtual churches. We need to recognize that these are tumbleweeds. These are people who have rolled into our lives, and they're now among the people that have been trusted to our care. 
and we need to give them language to talk about their common experience. And then we need to talk about, I mean, it turns out the faith is, the Christian faith is really very articulate about what to do when you reach the end of your own capacity. It's an invitation for us. Yeah, it really is. And I, I think a lot of what I've been reflecting on as I've been thinking about these tumbleweeds, Scott, that are showing up at our virtual doors that are coming into this space of worship these days. You know, of course, I, I come out of theological education, so I've been thinking a lot about how we prepare leaders. And I, I this is going to sound far more critical of my colleagues than I intended. So I, I, I want to take responsibility for being part of the system. But I think part of what we've done over the years is to think about that this work of attending to the tumbleweeds, of attending to um, the people who are, who God is presenting to us, who is um, giving to us um, in these kind of tumbleweed forms, we've started to think, we think about that work as kind of optional. It's like if I get all of my other work done, it's like the story Terry started with, right? Like if we get all of our, our churchy work done, then maybe we'll give some thought or energy to what it might be like to reach out to our neighbors. It just feels like it's one of those things that's that we talk about in seminary, but we don't forefront. And so the work of like helping leaders think about how to shift that work back up to the front to understand it, I think as as Jesus did as the essential work of the gospel, boy, that's that seems to be part of the challenge that's in front of us. You know, I think one of the pivots that comes out of this for me is in our church world, and I too, Louise, come from seminary education, where we actually separate classes on evangelism and outreach, right? As if we can pull them apart, separate them from each other, and from our love of God and neighbor. And, and so part of what rings true for me is I, I'm taken back to the, the Good Samaritan uh, on the road and the one that stops and the one that's neighborly is the one that has mercy. And I wonder what this means for us as we think about the call to love our neighbor. You talk about in this moment, this pandemic moment, I got a great story of a colleague of mine from Colorado. And she and I were talking about this great resource called The Art of Neighboring and what it means to love our neighbor. And she actually created this event for her high school kids. They did this, they did this trip and did all these activities that were inspired by this book that's actually on this story. What does it mean to love God and love our neighbor? And she's sitting one day, like I was out on my front porch reading, and her neighbor kind of waves from across the street and in the midst of her reading, she was reminded of this book. And this book was challenging people. And she actually had the students do this. Who are the neighbors? And have them write that down. What's their names? What do you know about them? And she realized how few neighbors that she knew. And so as she remembered that, as she's reading this book and waved to her neighbor, and she's put the book down. And she's like, okay, Holy Spirit, I'm going. So she gets up, invites her neighbor, and says, hey, you got an afternoon, let's go meet our neighbors. 
So appropriately social distance, they went around, the two of them together and knocked on doors, introduced themselves. She said, I apologize. I've lived here for a long time and I don't know your name. I'm so-and-so, this is so-and-so. And they went through this. And in the course of that afternoon, she was transformed. She is actually a rostered deacon, deaconess in our uh, Lutheran circles for a word in service. She's called to love her neighbor. That's her calling. And she said, I had in all those years never stopped and learned about my neighbor whose wife died of cancer and how who another neighbor was going through um, some surgery and how the neighbors could come alongside and support them. And she emailed me the next day. She goes, I have to tell you about this experience. It was transformational. As you're telling the story, I keep thinking of a, um, a quote from, I was reading a book on fundraising that uh, was written by uh, Tom Jevons and Roberto Birch Basinger. And they, it's called Growing Givers Hearts. And they tell a story about how in this current era, we think of giving as supporting our neighbor. We often give to say Salvation Army or um, we give to a uh, soup kitchen. And what ends up happening is we want to love our neighbor without ever knowing our neighbor. We want to be able to give so that we can not have hands-on experiences where we're dealing with people who have messy and complicated lives because those complicated lives become inconvenient for us. And I think about the people that God blows into our lives, uh, the, the, the tumbleweeds. Oftentimes, they are people that I would not have chosen to try to minister to because they are inconvenient. They demand things of me that I don't want to have to give. But that's kind of the nature of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. One of the stories I love from scripture, I think, begins to get at that, right? So it, it feels like if you if you start to read one of the gospels from beginning to end, I'm in Mark right now, and one of the one of the things that you start to feel a little you start to feel a little bad for Jesus because he keeps trying to to find a place to rest, right? He's tired, he's uh, constantly dealing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the disciples who don't get it, and so on and so forth. And so there's, there are these occasions when he's trying to go off by himself to pray, sometimes by himself and sometimes with the disciples. But again and again and again, what happens is that that plan of doing the work that he wants to do of spending time in prayer with God or taking some time away for reflection, what happens again and again is that the crowds follow along. And oftentimes they're bringing, they're bringing their wounded, you know, the blind, the lame, people who have a lot of need, who have a long time ago gotten to the end of their capacities, been disavowed of their sense of agency and understand so deeply the need for God, so much they understand it that they follow him in all, into all these places and up mountains and all this kind of thing. 
And I, I giggle a little bit at the disciples who I think want to, in some ways, take care of Jesus in the crowds. And so I think they're well-intended. And it's a move that I recognize a lot. They want to send the crowds away before it gets dark because they see that there are thousands before them. And they don't have enough food to go around. And so they want to send people away. And yet what Jesus does is he doesn't send them away with a, a donation for the salvation army, as you're pointing out, nor does he separate out evangelism and mission outreach, but instead it becomes part of the same move. He invites the people to sit down. He gathers what is available. He uh, blesses it and then feeds the people, but they share a meal together. They engage in both a relationship. He feeds all kinds of hungers. So you know, I've had to work some at how do I begin to think about this work that goes together? And so my own language for it, some people don't like it, but my own language for this is how do we introduce people to the abundant life of God? And so that question, I think for me, captures all of these pieces. I can't love my neighbor um, and build a relationship with her when she's hungry. And I can't just give her food without building a relationship with her and convey something of the depth of relationship that God offers to us in Jesus Christ. They go together. You know, the other piece that comes in my mind when you said that, Louise, was another part of the story that I didn't share with about Kristen. So on this trip, they had gone to a a homeless shelter to serve, which isn't uncommon. And what she knew that this, the group did not know was that one of their young adults that was with on the trip, mom, had actually been homeless. She struggled with addiction and had been in and out of different shelters. And that night, they got a call that her mom died. And they had to leave in the middle of the night. I mean, they had to make a decision. They said, we need to return home. We need to go. She looked at her other leaders and they said, we have to wake up the kids and tell them what happened and why we're leaving. And they did. And they went away. And she, re she told me that story and I started bawling. And she said, what we learned in that is having mercy is not on them, it's on all of us. That loving our neighbor changes everyone. It's not a separation. And that's part of this gift of abundant life with God, right? Is not only separating the compartments of evangelism from service, from loving God and loving our neighbor, but that they all get intertwined. And that God is revealed as much in those times when they had nothing as on those moments when they're rejoicing together. This has been great, but what do we do with it? How do we, how do we take it home? I'm struck by how many of my colleagues have posted on different media platforms, the church has left the building. We are not about our gatherings. And I want to say yes and. I struggle with knowing how do we do that. And so one of the things I want us to take away is 
what are some practices that we can help people take church out of the building? So I ran into my neighbor sitting outside my front porch. What are some practices that I can have to engage with my neighbor? Well, one of the practices is the one that Kristen did with her young people that did in her own backyard that comes from the Art of Neighboring book is literally to draw a map of your neighborhood or your floor on a condo or your townhouse unit and, and write down who is your neighbors, what are their names, what do you know about them, how might you literally love them, how might you be a good neighbor to them. And if you don't know, reach out and ask. That was the little practice that was transformative for Kristen's group and for Kristen and her neighborhood. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about as I work with pastors in what it means to pastor in these days is that uh, this is incredibly difficult work, in part because we haven't really been trained for it. And in part because, you know, it's really, it's an overwhelming time. It's hard to uh, find bandwidth and particularly for new things. But I wonder what it would be like. I think, you know, one of the things that's challenging about having new people in a digital space is you can't see them. So it's easy to just have in your mind's eye, or maybe in some cases on your Zoom screen, the people who you do know. And it's easy to preach to them because we know them and because we know their stories and we know what the gospel sounds like for them. But I wonder if we might begin to imagine who the people are who are entering into our spaces digitally that we can't necessarily see, but who need a word just as much as the people in our own congregations. So what does it look like? What would it look like if we could see them? So I love your idea of mapping, Terry, and I wonder what a visual might look like if I'm a preacher in a digital age. I wonder what a visual might look like where there were some people who represented people I didn't know, people who were new to us, and how that might change or shape my preaching. And particularly as I think about telling stories or using references that the insiders might know, the people who were there four or five months ago, but that new people might not know. What does that language sound like? What does preaching sound like? Thank you, Louise. I love this idea of what does neighborly preaching look like? And Terry, you ask about practices. I wonder what tumbleweed practices would look like. And I can think of five tumbleweed practices. Number one is awareness. That the key to the story that you told is that uh, you waved to your neighbor or you know, the woman waved to her neighbor and said, I was aware of her. Or your neighbor came over and you didn't just blow them off. So awareness. Number two is openness. When something like this rolls into your life, you've got to be willing to say, yeah, yeah, I, I think I'll, I'll, I'm aware of this. God's doing something. I've got to be aware. The, the third one is listening. And we did a whole podcast on listening. And we've talked together about listening. So awareness, openness, listening. The fourth one is empathy. Uh, we did a whole podcast on empathy, but the key for me of many of the of the tumbleweed conversations that I've had is when they have when the person has seen on my face that I am empathetic to their situation, it creates a tremendous openness for them. And so then the fifth of these would be follow up or invitation 
to be able to invite somebody to further conversation. We can be aware, we can be open, we can listen, we can have empathy, but then oftentimes we'll just shut it down after that and say, well, that was nice and I can be done. The fifth is to follow up and to give some kind of invitation. So those are the tumbleweed practices. Well, that brings our podcast today to a close, our conversations about loving our neighbor. We're actually going to continue that conversation next week because there's an awful lot more that we have to say about loving neighbor. In the meantime, go to love and serve the Lord. Thanks for joining us for this episode of our Pivot Podcast. For more leadership resources from LEAD, you can go to waytolead.org or from Faith Lead, go to faithlead.luthersem.edu.